we are told of how God has shown mercy toward us. All of us as sinners who are guilty before God. How in Christ he provided for us the righteousness that we lacked. The righteousness that he actually demanded. That he did that for us. That God was just and justifier of sinners who looked to him through Christ. We also see in the first section of the book of Romans how God has not only provided for our justification, but he has made provision for us even now to begin to experience freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And we all can testify to that. Yes, we struggle with sin, but we must not lose sight of the fact that the power of God is already at work in us, causing us to hate the things we once loved, the things that have held, held us in captive, and that by the grace of God, we are already turning away from those things. But there is more. That in the same section, we also see how God has already made provision for our future glorification. The fact that one day we will not be struggling with sin anymore, with the power of sin within us. Sin will be totally done away with. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. But now in chapter 12, the apostle begins to shift his focus, not from the indicatives, of the gospel, from what God has done, but from how we are to respond to the mercy that God has shown for us. Sometimes we spend time, we are thinking, oh wow, look at those wonderful doctrines. But they were meant to serve as the foundation on which we are to live lives that are transformed for the glory of God. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, the apostle tells us that in view of the great mercy that God has shown toward us, we are to dedicate our lives to God. That it is the only reasonable, the only logical thing that we can do, having received his mercy, to offer our bodies, our very lives, to him. And in verses 3 through 8, we're told that having saved us, he places us in the context of the body, and then he makes provision for the growth of the body by giving us, what? Gifts. And that we are to exercise those gifts in the context of the body for the growth of the church. Then in verses 9, in verse 9 rather, the apostle, just like he did in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, after a long exposition on the spiritual gifts, we see the apostle doing the same thing here. After addressing spiritual gifts, he turns his attention to some of the virtues that are to be displayed in our relationships one with another, and specifically and immediately to the virtue of love. And in starting there, 
most commentators believe and that Paul wants to make a point, the same point that he made in 1 Corinthians 13, namely that ministry in the context of the church, regardless of how gifted we are, equals nothing apart from love. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophecy, powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So for Paul, love is indispensable for the proper functioning of the body. It was so for the Corinthian church, and so it is for every single church. It is true for our church as well. Without love, love for one another, whatever we do, regardless of how gifted we are, my dear brothers and sisters, our ministry will not amount to much. And the word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 13 and here is the word agape, which is the love that has God as its author. The sacrificial love of God. The love that God shown to, toward us in Christ when he sent him to die for us on the cross. It is that same love that he spoke of earlier in Romans chapter 5 when he speaks of the love of God, the love that God has for us being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is this love. This wonderful God, this amazing love, rather, that God wants us to reflect in our relationship with one another. To really reflect that. Not just to know about it, not just to speak about it, but to live it. In real time, in real places, in real circumstances, with real people. That's the love that Paul has in view. So in the rest of chapter 12, Paul is essentially taking the time to show how love is to be demonstrated within the body. He uses different words, but the main theme really of the rest of the chapter is love. So my goal this morning is... To focus solely on verse 9 and 10. Initially I wanted to do 9 to 21. And I began to realize no, that, that's going to be too much. Uh, but we'll focus solely this morning on verses 9 and 10. It is my hope. My sincere hope and prayer. That God will be gracious to us this morning. That the spirit of God will work mightily in us. That he will use this word to strengthen our grip. Borrowing from Chuck Swindoll. To strengthen our grip on the call to show Christ's love towards 
one another. There are times we are holding onto something, but then the stresses come and we are unable and we start letting go. So it is with our grip on the virtues of the Christian faith. So my hope is that regardless of where we may be individually and as a body, that God would use this word this morning to strengthen our grip on this call to love one another. We can never be reminded enough of the call to love each other. When we speak of loving one another, what is that love to be actually like? How is it to be manifested in our daily interactions? From the two verses that I just read to you, I want to point to four things, could call them four marks of true Christian love. Four marks, and each mark will have two words in them. The first one has technically three because the first two are, well, compound word, but basically two words, just to let you know if you're taking notes. The first mark that we see here is what I call gospel-produced genuineness. First mark of Christian love, gospel-produced genuineness. Let love be genuine. You may have another version, a King James Version, that says, let love be without dissimulation. Or the NASB, New King James, says, let love be without hypocrisy. And if he puts it positively, love must be sincere. Now, the way it is stated in the Greek text, which we don't get in the English version, is that there is actually no verb. The verb is supplied by the translator based on the context and to make it really clear for us. And, and then so we have essentially the love without Hypocrisy. So for us it is translated genuine. So the word that we need to get here is this whole idea of without hypocrisy. That's the qualifier that we want to look at this morning, or genuine or sincere. Now the word without hypocrisy, this phrase without hypocrisy, is found six times in the entire New Testament. It is used twice to describe faith, that our faith must be without hypocrisy, genuine. It is used once to describe wisdom and three times to describe love. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6, Paul uses this expression without hypocrisy to refer to the kind of love that marked his own ministry to the Corinthians. As you know, Paul had many people who opposed him and he wanted to tell them about how he ministers and he says this, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we concern, commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, 
riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and last, genuine love. Love without hypocrisy. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, love without hypocrisy is presented as a result of obeying the truth. Having purified your minds, your souls, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The word hypocrisy itself, some of you may know, was used of the masks used by actors on the stage. Some of the masks were happy. Some were sad. But obviously the mask did not truly, necessarily, at times I'm sure it did, did not necessarily reflect what the actor was truly feeling. It simply refers to the role that this actor was playing at that particular moment. So the point that Paul is making is that our love for one another is not to be like a phony mask that we are putting. But rather, it must be the real thing. It must reflect what truly is. As we said earlier, the NIV translate without hypocrisy. It states it positively. didn't use that without hypocrisy. It says rather, Paul it, he uses the word sincere. Our love must be sincere. Now, just like hypocrites, sincere has a very interesting, very interesting uh, origin as well. Do you know what it is? Some of you do. Well, maybe if you know, that's all right. But the word sincere is a word that, well, that really has its origin in the marketplace where people, they would sell pots and when the pot has, had a crack in it and they wanted to sell it, they would put wax to cover the crack and glaze over it. And then they would sell it. Now, Eric would buy that pot. <laughs> I don't pick on Eric. Or whatever. Somebody would go buy that pot thinking it's a nice pot. And later you go, you realize the crack starts showing up. And what do you do with a crack, with a pot with crack? <laughs> you throw it away. It's useless. But if a merchant was honest, what he would do is that you once you look at that Heart, there would be a stamp on it with the words sine sera, meaning without wax. Without wax. The love that we are called to have one another, my dear brothers and sisters, must be a love that is sincere without wax. Thinking maybe this morning of bringing some wax to show you. Maybe some of you as a reminder of this man, we will get wax and think about that. Yeah, that's a thing that must be absent from my love. Our love must be sine seda, without wax, sincere. It needs to be the real deal. No pretending. Nothing fake. 
Nothing phony about our love. A love without hypocrisy is a love that comes from our heart. Our kind actions and words reflect the loving disposition of our hearts toward each other. A love without hypocrisy also means that we are not just saying it, but we are showing it through our actions. We don't, we're not just simply loving with our words, but also with our deeds. 1 John 3.15 and 18 gives us warning about this. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So our love, if it is genuine, must be expressed in real action. I cannot say, I love you, the word is saying. I love you, you my brother, and you are starving when I have plenty. And just say, God bless you, see you next time. That's not real love. Of course, our love needs to be discerning. Uh, we, don't need, we don't want to enable irresponsibility, laziness. The Bible says a lot about that. And, and so when we talk about expressing love toward people in need, let's be mindful of that. And we're not fostering a sense of dependence. We're actually hurting when we really wanted to help. But the point is, this, our love, if it is true, if it is genuine, must be expressed. Donald Gray Bonhouse from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia puts it like this. He says, true love must leave the stage and walk the paths of real life. It must leave the stage and walk the path of real life. Now here's a question. Why did Paul see the need to exhort the Roman Christians to have love without hypocrisy? Why? could have said so many things. Why would Paul? He had just finished talking about Gifts and first thing. Where in the world did that come from? Let love be without hypocrisy. Why did the Roman Christians need such an exhortation from Paul? And why do we? Why do I? Why do you need such an exhortation? Obviously, Paul knew what I believe all of us know. Is that the temptation to love hypocritically, is a very real one and a very strong one. There are even cultural forces, right, that pressure us to love, to act a certain way. We have all sorts of superficial niceties, right, especially here. I know from New York people remind me all the time, we are so nice here in the South. I'm like, all right, let's see. So even culturally, there are certain things we do, we say, but do we mean them? Not necessarily. Stop over any time. Right? 
And then the person calls and says, I was driving by, I'm coming. <laughs> but we all do it. My house is your house. I have all those empty bedrooms and, you know, anytime. Make yourself at home. And the phone rings, you know. Um, So we say things, we train, we raise, we even train our little children to say certain things that we don't really mean them. But more than the cultural, those cultural norms of, you know, pretending to be nice, saying nice things, there's even a bigger and deeper problem, and it is our own hearts. Paul understands that within our own even as believers, there is still a strong tendency to put on a mask, to cover the sins of our own hearts toward our brothers and sisters, right? Jealousy, anger, selfishness, indifference, times even hatred that we may be harboring. And we're smart at using masks to cover them. Of course, Scripture gives us the, the ultimate example. Judas, one whose attitude toward Jesus epitomizes love without, with hypocrisy. He appeared to be with Jesus, did he not? Yet inwardly, the devil had filled his heart to the point where he betrayed him with a kiss to those who are ready to murder him. The tendency of our sinful hearts is for us to try to appear more loving than we really are. And we do that so that others would think highly of us, so that we would be praised by other people. We do that to create good impression. Sometimes to cover flaws within ourselves. Sometimes we do that because we want to gain favor from the very people that we are seeking, we are supposedly claiming to love. We may even do great acts of kindness without really having much love in our hearts at all. Jesus warned of this in Matthew 6, 1 to 3. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So just the hypocrites in Jesus' day that struggle with that temptation, we do too. Or even do great things. Where the motivation is to be seen by others. 1 Corinthians 13.3 has a very shocking statement. Have you ever been shocked? Were you shocked the first time you read it? I'm still shocked when I read it. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, 
but have not love, I gain nothing. Thought about that? We would assume that the very giving of our body, of all everything that we have, is a definite proof of agape, right? But Paul is saying, you may do that. Give your life. Hypocritically. That's how deceitful our hearts are. Hence the need for us to be exhorted to love without hypocrisy. Of course, even in the context, hypocritical love goes against Paul's exhortation in verse 3, where he says, we are not to think of ourselves too highly. Hypocritical love is not about the other person at all. It is rather about elevating oneself. Thinking, wanting others to constantly think of how high, how good, how wonderful we are. Verse 3 calls us to self-forgetfulness in the service of Christ and his people. However, our hypocritical heart wants to use others to be constantly thinking about ourselves, how we can look good, even when we are doing what, from all appearances, is a very kind thing. The temptation is real, it is strong, but it is one that must be resisted. Our love must not be hypocritical. John Murray says, if love is a sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring these together. It must not be so among us. It must not be so with me. The good news of the gospel is that there is grace provided for us to resist the temptation to love hypocritically. There is grace for selfish, self-absorbed sinners to increasingly learn to love as Christ love. Genuinely. Truly. The God who justifies sinners has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us his word so that we would be transformed in the likeness of his son. So yes, we do have to contend with the evil, sinful tendencies of our hearts. But there is grace for us in the gospel. We can resist the temptation to love hypocritically. And we can do it as we learn to rehearse to ourselves the truth of the gospel, the truth that God has for us, said about us. Tim Keller summarizes in a way that is very helpful to us. What does he say? We are more sinful, we must believe that, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What does that mean for hypocritical love? It means I have nothing to prove. I don't need to pretend that there's no flaw. I am deeply loved and accepted 
And I was yesterday, I will be tomorrow. I am deeply loved. Yes, there is sin. God has accepted me in Jesus Christ. Knowing everything about me. Even the thing I don't know about myself. And so it is with all of us. Therefore, as we say these things to ourselves, let us, let us not be held captive by the desire to gain approval, to gain the acceptance of others to, in such a way where we'll pretend. It frees us to be genuine. Love must be genuine. And this is something that the gospel only can do. That's why he says gospel provoked genuineness. That's a mark, first mark of true love. The second one is moral discernment. Moral discernment. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Two points that I want to, to, to highlight this morning. Point number one, love Biblical love discerns between that which is good and that which is evil. Biblical love is not morally indifferent. True love discriminates between that which is good and that which is evil. And point number two is biblical love calls us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Let me unpack this a little bit. It says, abhor what is evil. And the word translated abhor, and some may say hate, means to despise, to hate bitterly. It expresses a strong feeling of power. It also carries the idea, because it is so horrifying, it carries with it the idea of separation. It is so bad, I want to stay away from it. It is that bad. Evil is something that we are to flee completely. Something that we are not to be associated with. So we are exhorted to hate evil. Now, in this context, it's not just evil in, as a matter of principle in general term, but most commentators believe when it says abhor evil, it's not just talking about hating, abhorring evil in general, but rather because it is of its connection to love, rather we are not to do, we are to hate the idea of doing anything that might be injurious or harmful toward our brothers and sisters. While it's stated as a command, imperative, abhor evil, it's really it's a participle supporting the idea of love. So love abhorring what is evil. Loving you means I must certainly not be the cause of evil. The thought of hurting you, of harming you, must be absolutely horrifying to me. 
horrifying to me. That's what it's saying. Biblical love. That's the love that we ought to have for one another. To hate, to abhor the very idea of doing something that would be harmful to you. But it also means more that if you are engaged in evil, that I would love you enough to do everything to help rescue you from evil. That's why in the New Testament we see so many exhortations about what? Going to your brother. Because evil is that bad. And love hates to see evil causing injury to the one loved. Abhorring what is evil. But it also says holding fast. Holding fast to what is good. Not enough to abhor evil, but it says to hold fast to what is good. And the word used for holding fast is to cling, to cleave, just like in the marriage context, to stick with glue, to attach oneself. Just like you are to flee evil, run from evil, what we are to be totally wrapped up, identified, glued to that which is good. But again, it's true. But we are to love that which is good. We are to cling to what is good in general. But again, in this context, the same thing. Just we say abhorring evil, it's holding fast to that which is good. Our love is to be expressed by seeking that which is good for one another. By encouraging them to do that which is good. And by us doing that which is good for them. That's what it means to be loving. As you can see, it's very clear that love discriminates. For us to say, well, I'm going to do good, that assumption is that there is such a thing as some good, objective good and objective evil. I'm sure you can see it. Here's one point where we're going to have serious problems with our culture. Our culture is not our friend in loving well. Do you get that? The world around us, my dear brothers and sisters, is not your friend, my friend, in terms of understanding the biblical concept of love. Yet many of us, that's where we get it. Whether it be through books, whatever. But that's the concept of love. We think of love the way the world sees it. You see, in the world's way of thinking, either there is no absolute good or evil. So it's all relative. I am doing something and I find pleasure. I think it's good. Therefore, it's good for me. You're doing something that I believe is evil, but you say it's good, I'll leave you alone as long as what? You are happy. So we, the world either denies absolute good, evil, or it is confused over what's good, over what's evil. Confusion. The point where our culture celebrates the things that the Bible calls evil. 
and actually shuns the things that the Bible calls good. Is this the world we're in? Is this the context in which we are living, my dear brothers and sisters? Is this not the context that our children are growing up in? See why it's hard to love well. Because to love well means doing what we're told to do in verses 1 and 2. To not allow ourselves, our mind, to be conformed to patterns of the world. And love is one of those places where we see that conformity taking place. Wish I had time to just dwell on that. Whether it be in our relationship with people, with friends, in the marriage context, our idea of love is absolutely to a large degree corrupted in the church today. And we need God's word to renew our thinking about what it means to love. And real love, the Bible makes it very clear, discriminates between that which is good and that which is evil. And if I love you, my way of showing that is by pursuing your highest good. Your highest good, no matter what he takes of me. And if I love you, I am to so what? Certainly not to be the cause of evil. I'm to be horrified by the very idea that something I say or do would harm you. And I would not be indifferent if you are harming yourself. Ah, it's another one. You're like, hey, let live, you know, hey, that's not, it's my private life, man. This is America, Thomas, come on. We're free to do as we want. And so we get that in the church. Don't talk to me. Hey, look up your life. It's all being judgmental. Yeah. So get me going on that one, but <laughs> real love, yeah, judges. <laughs> but you know what's so silly about this? Is I've never met anybody, and I would challenge anyone who would say that to show me that they don't practice that with their children, at least to some degree. Even unbelievers, even unbelievers, when their children are doing certain things that are terribly harmful to them, they're going to say, absolutely not. But I love it, mommy. <laughs> it makes me feel good, but no. <laughs> Real love discriminates between that which is good and that which is evil. So we need to be morally discerning, brothers and sisters, when it comes to loving well, one another. Third mark, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to that which is good. Then it says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Some other versions have it like this. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. So the call in the first part of verse 10 is for us to be full of tenderness, full of affection for one another. The language that is used here calls for us to have 
the kind of affections that are typically rendered by those who are naturally brothers and sisters. We're not going to have time to look at the words, but that's the idea. The words that are used are familial words. That we are to be toward each other the way family members are to be toward each other. That we as Christians have the same family bond since we or through the new birth, so to speak, one person puts it, born of the same room, so to speak. We are family. Now, the words, we've read them, we hear them today, but think of what it was for Paul's hearers to hear such a word. Think of the diversity of the church. Who made up the church? The divisions. And for Paul to say, you are family. <laughs> You love one another as brothers and sisters. It is a radical call. Many commentators believe this idea of brotherly affection only existed in Christianity. The idea that individuals were not tied by virtue of their ethnicity, race, or blood were called to have brotherly affection. Because of their mutual relationship with Christ. Because of their belonging in the body of Christ, in the church. It is a very, it's an idea that was very foreign in the ancient world. Think about what it meant for the Roman Christians to hear that call. Think about what it meant for the outside world to watch Various people from various backgrounds actually, though imperfectly, beginning to relate to each other as brothers and sisters. Think of what it meant. Paul expected them to embrace that call, and so the same thing for us. It is a call that we must, we must embrace. Throughout the history of the church, we've shown sadly that we've not taken that call seriously, right? At least we've, yeah, so-and-so is my brother, but not so-and-so. But the Bible makes it clear that as believers in Jesus Christ, who are born again of the Spirit of God, that one Spirit, that we are family. And Jesus has no, does not have two families. One. So if you be a child of God, I'm a child of God, we are brothers. It is a fact. And we are truly, it's not a figure of speech, by the way. <laughs> it is a reality. We are truly and eternally related to each other. Think about that. Maybe this week, think about that. Think of the faces of Baraka. And not just Baraka. Faces of brothers and sisters or the parts of the world. Think about that. That you are related to them. And I would say this. In a way that is far deeper than your own relationship with brothers and sisters naturally, but who do not know Christ. Do you believe that? We need to let that sink in a little bit. Really family. It's not by accident that Paul instructed the believers, for example, to no less than five times to greet each other with a holy kiss. 
We hear Paul's words and we sense his affection for his brothers and sisters. For God is my witness. God knows my heart. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And to the church in Rome, in, Cor in Corinth rather, 2 Corinthians 6, 11, 13, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart, listen to those words, our heart is wide open like that. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Paul wants brotherly affection to be expressed between him and his brothers and sisters in the church at Corinth. How about us? Lord Jones calls on us to search our hearts on this matter of brotherly affection when he asks, can you say quite honestly, without hypocrisy, that you have a deeper affection for and a deeper understanding of your fellow Christians than you have for your natural relatives who are not Christians? Do you, can we say? Yes, it is helpful to ask how open our hearts are. How open are our hearts toward each other? How interested are we in getting to know each other? Is our attitude characterized by deep affection or indifference? The call of Scripture is very clear. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, I understand we are limited. Obviously, we have a church that's big. It's hard to be close and affectionate with every single person. Because the bigger the church is, the harder it is to practice this. But I believe that we don't want to just say, well, you know, that's just what it is. I'll just stick to a couple, Thomas. That's all I can do. I believe we need to take seriously the call to have deep affection for one another. In so much so that we say, God, help me expand my capacity to get to know my brothers and sisters over time. So that I will experience with them that deep affection. Does that make sense? So we are, yeah, of course. And we only have a couple of hundred. I don't know. But think of a church who has 2,000. Which, by the way, is a whole other issue. When a church gets too big. But we cannot ignore this command to have deep affection for brothers and sisters by simply saying, you know what? All I can do is handle two people, Thomas. I don't know about you, or an extrovert, I can see that, but I'm not like that. You know what? Most of you, I'll just go like this, wave if I'm in a good mood. Sometimes I may not even do that. That's just what it is, man. I can't take it. I don't even like coming here. It's okay, Give, leave me alone. And I'm not trying to be funny, but We really cannot ignore this. 
one of the things, when we don't take this seriously, it is very possible for us to simply stay with the people that we are naturally comfortable with. So it's not really a matter of time because we may be in that church for 20 years and what's passed by a brother and sister and never care once to sit down with them, have them over for me. Why is that? Lack of time? If you feel convicted in any way, join me. Join me. We are brothers and sisters, and the idea here is a point. There must be that disposition, that inclination. I'm not talking about waking up one day, finding, oh, I've spent everything. No, that's not the point. The point is that disposition needs to be there, which drives me to prayer. It makes me intentional about reaching out, reaching out, and reaching out, and reaching out. And what we'll find, if that disposition is there, that motivation is there, that God will bless us over time with a greater capacity to widen our hearts toward one another. And we'll find ourselves, we'll find as a body honoring God in this responsibility of functioning like brothers and sisters, showing affection to one another. One last more. Mentioned being genuine, gospel-centered, gospel-provoked, rather. Genuineness. Uh, we've talked about moral discernment. Um, brotherly affection. Last, last mark, verse 10b, selfish humility. Selfless. <laughs> Big difference. Selfless humility. Selfless humility. Outdo one another. We are exhorted. In showing honor. The call to outdo one another in showing honor is one that actually flows naturally from the previous one. When you have deep affection for someone, you want to honor them, right? The word translated outdo in our text or preferring literally means to go before or show the way to lead, figuratively speaking, to set an example. That's the idea. So as one commentator puts it, it's not only an injunction of politeness, but one calls, one that calls for us in all respects, in all respect and kindness to take the lead. Instead of waiting for others to honor us, we should be beforehand with them in the manifestation of respect. And the Greek word, the Greek text suggests that we are to literally go ahead, take the lead, not wait for others. Paul in Philippians 2, 3 says, that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that each person, let's, each esteem others better than himself. The call to outdo one another or to prefer one another in honor is essentially a call for us to be other-centered in our words and deeds out of love for one another. It is a call for us, and listen to this, to so value others within the body that we'll be quick 
to show appreciation towards them instead of waiting on others to show appreciation to us. So it begins with valuing. Valuing each other. James Boyce says it like this, don't wait around for people to recognize your contributions and praise you. Instead, be alert to what they are contributing and honor them. And honor them. By the way, outdoing one another and showing honor is not something that we do because we fear other people. (laughs) Or because we have a low view of ourselves. I am nothing but you. Or because we fear the rejection of others. Or out of a desire of manipulation. So we are really going to say how wonderful, praise them. Not because we truly believe that. So we want something from them. To be on their good side. The world does a lot of that, right? Positioning ourselves with the mighty and the great. And so we can do the same thing in the church. We ought to honor each other, and the Bible makes the distinction. All of our brothers and sisters. Not just those who are super gifted. Those who are of high status. But those who may be the weakest among us. Those that are generally passed over. Oh, that God would help us to have eyes for one another that we will notice and encourage and show deep appreciation toward each other because we are brothers and sisters and we love one another. This is not a natural thing for us to do. Our natural tendency is to do the very opposite, to wait to be served, right? To wait to be honored. Look at what I've been doing. I'm waiting. Haven't they seen how much I've done here? What's going on here? Am I the only one who struggles with this sort of thing? To be recognized. To wait for others to say how wonderful we are. The words outdo almost imply some kind of holy rivalry. Let me go. Jump at it. (laughs) To be concerned. To outdo you. To defeat you in showing honor. Try to show that with my kids. In this household, let's fight to serve each other. Yeah, dad. (laughs) You do the dishes. My job, let me go do the dishes. We have kids here. Yeah, guys. This week, that's what we're going to see. Oh, no, let me serve you. Oh, let me go. I got it. Well, we know children struggle, but we do too, right? Yeah, our sinful heart is not inclined, naturally, to honor others who are to be honored. But it must not be so. And, and again, this is where we've got to believe that the gospel promises are true, that the power of Christ is real, that he can do in us what is unnatural to us. Barakah, may God help us. I trust that the message has been clear. So I read it, I was like, what do I need to say? The words are pretty clear, Lord. 
Trust that you've been helped to hear those clear words again, that the Spirit of God is working in your heart, encouraging you, perhaps convicting you, or doing both. But one final question I want to end with. Where are we to make loving one another such a priority? Why does it matter so much? Obviously, it matters for the good of our brothers and sisters who are family. We ought to do that. should find joy in seeing them. Experience the good, that which is good. But ultimately, the reason we must take this seriously is because of the way that we ourselves have been loved by our wonderful Christ. He is the model, the perfect model of sincere love. No hypocrisy in his love for us, right? No pretense. He embodies real love. None of us as believers can testify to that. None of us can look at him in the eye and say, ah, you're just faking it. You don't really love me. And when we don't feel that love, experience that love is because of our own unbelief. But he truly, truly, truly loves. He really loves. No pretense in his love. He's the perfect model of holy love. His love for us discriminates between that which is good for us and that which is evil. He's relentless in accomplishing that which is good for us. Discipline us, if it be, so that we would experience that which is good. He instructs us. He loves us. Holy, pure way. He's a perfect model of what it means to love his brothers. You know, he is our brother. And what a brother he is. Our natural brothers are imperfect. We are imperfect as brothers and sisters. Until we reach heaven, we, we, our love for one another will not be perfect, but his is. He loves well. He loves us. Deep affection for us. He's a perfect model of humble love. So we're going to, in a moment, meditate on his humble love for us as he gave his life on our behalf at the cross to show real love to us. Oh, that God in his grace would work in our hearts, in our mind, to cause his truth to grip us. That we would be changed by them. God knows where you are individually. God knows where we are collectively as a church. God knows where our brothers and sisters are who are no longer part of this body. We don't know what the future holds for our lives, right? Do we individually? Or certainly for this church. But we can trust God to keep this body, 
God has shown grace over the years to this body in showing his love for us and in making us a loving community. So regardless of what happens, may we ever be committed to loving each other as brothers and sisters. Regardless of where God takes us, this truth will never change that we are part of the same family. And our ultimate responsibility is to love. To love each other. In such a way that the world will ask questions. Even when there is conflict, but that in the midst of conflict itself, we can be loving. Even when we don't agree, even when there is separation, we can love each other and honor Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the reality of your love, of your gracious love, of your merciful love, of your genuine love for sinners. At times we look at ourselves and say, can it be true that God would really love us knowing the worst about us? But your word is clear that you do love us and you've demonstrated your love as you gave your son your only son, to die in our place, that our sins would be totally forgiven, that would be fully accepted by you, and that would be with you eternally. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for what your love has accomplished in the life of this body, how you raised this church, you've sustained it over the years, cause it to grow in the knowledge of your love, and cause it to be a loving community. May it be so more and more, Lord. Pray that you would cause us at all times to be loving. And where, Father, when we fail, may we run to you and we do fail so many times. For grace for grace to repent, to turn away from our selfishness, from our indifference, and to find grace to love again. Where we've been hurt, that would find grace not to close our hearts, but to experience your healing and open our hearts to each other. Dear God, may your love abide with us. May your deep love transform us. And may this church be a, always a bold and clear witness to communities near and far of the wondrous love that you've shown for us in Jesus Christ. And we want that to be so that the nations would would praise you. The glories of your grace. That's why we want all of this to be true.
Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.